Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello and welcome to Operation Silver Screen. Our show and our mission is centralized on Caitlin and I catching up and giving a debrief on must-see films that we haven't yet seen. However, we also have an additional task that comes with this assignment, which we refer to as our bonus objectives. The goal of our bonus objectives is to watch and debrief sequels and remakes of classics and must-see films. Not only will we review these movies, but also analyze it from the perspective of their predecessors. And Caitlin, what was our movie this week? So this Tuesday, we're going to be tackling Hellraiser in our core episode, but today we're opening up the puzzle box again and calling the Cenobites back as we take a look at the 2022 Hellraiser sequel, or requel, I guess, would be more fitting for this particular film, that just released on Hulu on streaming. So before we get into it, I do want to mention that the first part of our debrief will be spoiler-free as we talk about our overall thoughts on the film, but as we move into the classified part of the mission, there will be some spoilers on the story, and we'll be sure to give you a warning when we get to that part. So just that we're on the same page, just a little bit of a summary of what's going on here. Hellraiser follows the story of the Cenobites. The Cenobites are an extra-dimensional group of beings that inflict all kinds of pain and torture and pleasure, maybe. And they are called to the human world when a puzzle box is completed. And so for this particular film, we follow a young girl. She's, or younger, I'd say she's probably a younger adult, probably in her 20s. And she is living with her brother and she has some friends that are around and she comes across this puzzle box under some interesting circumstances. And so we follow her as she's learning about what this puzzle box is and the background with it as she tries to escape the Cenobites. You think that's a good, good recap, Bryant? (laughs) I feel like it's hard to summarize this without giving too much of a story away. But there's also not much of a base. It kind of it kind of throws you into it. Yeah, no, that's that's a good summary to at least get you started with it. Young girl finds a box and box starts doing weird things and got she's got to figure out what what box want. Now I do have to make a correction, and it's actually gonna be a correction when you guys hear our episode on Tuesday. I'm not going back and recording it all. It's not Cenobites, Caitlin. I blame this all on you. It's Cenobites. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, did you not watch the second one? I did, but I'm still pronouncing it Cenobites. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I wish, uh, so there was a problem with the Hocus Pocus when I was doing like outtakes for it, so I wasn't able to put our outtakes of us trying to say Cenobites. Actually, I think I did, but we are like Cenobites, Cenobites, Cinnaminibites, Cinnaminis. <laughs> Cinnamon Bites, but yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. The Cenobites. No, it's, uh, yeah, Cenobites. Cenobites. Okay, sorry for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be all in that episode on Tuesday that we release. I- I'm probably still going to refer to it as, yeah, I'm probably going to still refer to it as Cenobite at some point in this podcast. So go ahead and take my apology right now for what I'm going to say. <laughs> So in preparation for this film, we did watch Hellraiser, of course, which is our episode on Tuesday, but we also watched Hellraiser 2 as well. 
just so we have an idea of what a sequel to this franchise might look like. And so, Brian, were you excited for this new installment for this franchise? I know that Hellraiser was your first time watching that particular film for episodes, so it's not a series that has been with you for a while. So I am curious about how your thoughts were going into this new requel. Like I've said before, I was upset when I found out it was being released because we took out American Werewolf in London. Just want to say that again. Uh, But... (laughs) So I wasn't looking forward to this movie when it first came out. Like, I wasn't dreading it because I didn't know anything about it. But when I watched the first Hellraiser, that it, it became a little bit easier to, to come to terms that I have to watch the sequel and, and this movie. I was like, okay, there's there's something here. This This can be actually interesting. So I can't say that I was actually looking forward to this, but I wasn't dreading it. I think I would have been a little bit looking forward to this movie if I saw the director beforehand I did look at it while I was watching the movie because I, I got curious while I was watching it and found out that it was actually David Bruckner and David Bruckner he's a somewhat of a new director he directed a story in the anthology movie Southbound uh, which is a decent horror flick and actually I really like the the story that he directed is actually the best story in there and I think it's a really cool horror story he also directed Ritual, which Caitlin, you coincidentally watched uh, not too long ago, just just because. Yeah, I watched it this week, and for no reason other than I was just looking for a horror movie to watch on streaming, and it's one that was uh, recommended to me in the past, and that I've heard a lot of good things about it. Whether I agree with that is another story, but... <laughs> <laughs> Check out her letterbox. <laughs> And he also directed last year's horror movie, Night House, which I, I, I really like. I think it had some some issues, but there were some things that I really liked in that film. And with all three films, I, I can always say that the direction or all two uh, the two films and the story, the direction is actually really good. I, I like some of the things that he does in particular for, for horror to make to get you those scares and those chills. And he just has a unique way of going about that. I don't think he's one of our best horror directors that we have. He's no Ari Oster or Mike Flanagan. But I still think he has a really good potential. I just wish that he would have some better stories underneath him that he will work with. And actually in this movie, he returns with his writers from Nighthouse, Two of his writers. Or two of the writers that he, he works with. That's going to be Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski. Piotrowski let's go with that okay (laughs) so I was I was like okay cool this this is actually I'm glad to see like this trio is is back together and see what they do with a bigger budget and a a legacy character that's something that would have made me a little bit more looking forward to this film but I didn't find out till midway through the film or like midway through the first act and I kind of already had my opinion of the movie developing. Just one note, he also did direct uh, Amateur Night, which was a short in the original VHS. And I think it's one of the better ones in that anthology as well. So that's just another credit that he has under his belt. Nighthouse was a film that, while I'm not sure I liked it as much as you did, I think that the construction of it was very well, especially the the atmosphere and the the attention to like the details in the environment 
I said it was something I really appreciated with his directing. And so that was something that I didn't really have in mind uh, when I was going into this because I think that when you're talking about a big franchise, sometimes your previous credits don't really matter. It's not always really reflective of what the film is going to be when you're working with a big franchise. But it is something that is cool and I think does give it a little bit of something in its favor. As far as the Hellraiser story itself, I've never really been a fan of Hellraiser. I think I do enjoy it more than when I first watched it when I was younger. And now we got a chance to watch the sequel, the second one as well. I'm definitely having a bit of a different and more complex view than what I probably had when I first saw it. So I wouldn't say I was super excited for this film. But I honestly was more excited just because of Prey. Prey was also another legacy horror that was premiering on Hulu that did very well and that I, I did enjoy. So I was curious to see if, you know, with this format and with that kind of background and just being a generally good year for horror, that it could do something with Hellraiser that was going to be new and fresh and exciting So I was definitely excited in that sense, even though I wasn't entirely a big Hellraiser fan. We've been having a lot of good horror. The question is, have we been getting too much good horror? Like, when is our luck going to run out? Yeah, that's true. I keep thinking that as well. (laughs) I mean, there's been some that are on par with what we usually get throughout the year, but this year definitely has uh, had a lot of more... While I don't say that it had an abundance of film that I would say are excellent horror, that's going to be my new favorites, but there are definitely some. I think that overall, compared to it's on the better than mediocre, at least, which we usually are coasting at mediocre. Agreed. I would say, too, that after watching Hellbound 2, I was interested in seeing what this movie would do because uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 has... It, it opens up the the lore, it opens up the the door to the lore for this for this franchise, and I started finding that pretty interesting. Unfortunately, they weren't able to fully explore it, so I was hoping that this film would, which it it does. That is part of the the plot summary that we're kind of holding from you guys, so that you get a you know you can get some some surprises there. Yeah, and I think that kind of leads into what do we think about this franchise as a whole. As I said, I'm not really a big Hellraiser fan. It's not really my thing, but I can have some appreciation for it. Bryant, what do you think of this as a franchise, having watched the second one now and this new one? I'll go ahead and start with what works in this franchise for me. What works is the, the gore that it uses. I think there's some really good imagery in the first one. Sometimes it's a bit random and it doesn't make sense, but like you said, the Cenobites, the Cenobites bring the ambiance, and they, they sure do in that film. And also when the demon is coming, or when Frank is coming back to life in that movie, it, it truly is horrifying, even to today's standard. Even Hellraiser 2 has some really good gore moments. I actually got a jump scare out of me, uh, and a little bit of a scream. I like, too, <laughs> that this is not a slasher. That's one thing that I was was happily surprised by in the first one, that it wasn't a basic horror film. Even though they, because they had that love affair going on and having to feed people to this creature, I thought that the motivation and and 
it didn't really, it wasn't so solid for me. At least they were trying something different. There was a little bit more to it. Yeah, I think something that I liked about Hellraiser as well is that it kind of tackled horror from different angles. You know, I thought that originally it was just going to be the gore, but also they added bugs, they added rats, they added like this kind of like sexuality type of horror to it. And and there's a lot going on. And so it didn't really seem to fit with just this is just a slasher. This is just gore. And that's it. It had layers and different types of fears that it could play on. Because like I know when I was watching the second one. I was like oh the bugs are what really gets me. The bugs are what gets me. It's like the gore doesn't get me. I, I know that the rats might get other people. But for me it was the bugs specifically that were like irritating me but that might not be the same for everyone other people might be more about the gore so i feel like it has so many different ways to scare you it has a jump scare so it it is inventive i think in that way yeah i think the only slash that really comes close to that is freddy using the dreams mm-hmm. and using different ways to scare people and, and speaking of scaring people something that scares a lot of people in this movie or the in this franchise are the cenobites i think the cenobites while they're kind of they're not the they're like the big bad main villain in the first movie. They're not the one that you see the entire time. But I think for the amount that they were in there, it's something that I wanted to see more of. And you do see them more in Hellraiser two. I thought that was really interesting. I thought they I thought they looked good. Their character design was really cool. Actually, I get why people like the priest a lot. Pinhead. He has some great line delivery. I got why people wanted him to be the face and wanted to see more of him. And as far as like the Cenobites and kind of goes with this whole film that we were saying with the horror imagery and the Cenobites themselves, just the way this film looks. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think aesthetically that it was well put together in the first Hellraiser and even some into the second to a degree. I think that how they composed their scenes was well done. And just the environment of that house I think was also the house was kind of a character itself, even though we didn't really see much of it. That attic in particular was something I think that really stood out. And that's all the good that I have to say about the franchise, which is a good amount. I don't want to add it like, well, that's mm-hmm. all I got. It's it's a good amount. Uh, there are a couple of things that I think don't really work in this franchise or just don't work at all. Is there anything else good that you had to say about the franchise? Well, I think that I liked the religious motifs in it. I think it was trying to say something with that. And then also just sexuality as a theme as well. I think that in the first one particularly, that there were a lot of themes that were going on underneath the surface. Yeah, I I agree on that too. I think that's kind of where the lore comes in a little bit. And what I was saying with it's just not a it's not a slasher it's not a standard horror they're they're adding some things mm-hmm. to it maybe not fully uh, I know you saw more of it than I had but th- it is in there a little bit and it's something that I was hoping that this new movie would go ahead and look into and and portray more. So what about things that you didn't like about this franchise? The story and the characters hold up as well as the house at the end of the first one. <laughs> I think when you start looking into it, one, the character motivations, they just aren't there. You don't understand why they're moving in this direction. Like why? Because I mean, to to even open up the puzzle box, you really got to 
you have to have a strong argument as to why you're going to allow demons to torture you or you believe that the demons are going to give you such sensational pleasure that it's worth risking to go into hell for. I don't think any character or either of the, the bad villains that we saw in the first two movies really had that that drive. Like, okay, I understand why they're doing this. It, to me, it just seemed like they were just being foolish with it. And, and and not like a good kind of foolish. And then uh, with Julia and Frank, her motivation, I mean, that was a big part of the story. You have to believe why she would be helping out Frank uh, uh, obtain his body again or make, make his body whole again. I never understood why she was like that other than, hey, she's sick in the head as well. But they don't really go ahead and explore that at all. And the, the sequel doesn't really have any good characters either. One character is just mute for the entire time. She just plays mute girl. And that that's it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that the characters are always the strongest. I don't think the story itself is the strong as it should be for the themes that they're presenting. And also another thing that I didn't like that was more in the second film than the original was this kind of humanizing of the Cenobites we see that they were once human and kind of this process of becoming what they are. And that was something that I don't think was really needed for me. I think that they are definitely scarier when they are just these other beings, these angels or demons, however you want to look at it. I like that idea. I just didn't like the way that it was resolved. But I like that they were once human and they just been through so much pain and anguish through this process that they became Cenobites because it gave another step in the process of this puzzle box. Like, man, it's one thing just to be for the meat hooks to come out and torture you, but you'll get to this point where you're yourself created into a demon. I mean, I feel kind of bad, too, for the the story of the second one because I think they were going off in a good direction or they had a good idea but unfortunately New Line Pictures at the time had a financial crisis and you can see it in this film like if you just want a film that Mm -hmm. shows that somebody is not not having a good time with the budget this is it they had to do rewrites in the middle of it and it looks like they were so far in that it would have cost more to back up than to go forward with what they had unfortunately because a portion of this film is actually they just replay the first film i was watching yeah. this and said oh it, apparently i didn't need to watch the first one we could have just done this all at all at once so but i think it opened up a lot in that movie but it didn't have the ability to close it which was unfortunate but it gave again the other movies the other nine sequels eight sequels a chance to go into it apparently they never did it from what i was reading they were just they were just horror sequels there for the gore and the the straight horror fans so again that's something that i was uh, hoping that this movie would go ahead and and take that like you know they got the budget we, we haven't heard about them losing out on their budget or anything like hey they can continue forward with it yeah something about the second one too is that i kind of wish that it was a newer story i think we see again this theme of okay this person is dead and now they need blood to resurrect them and so they can become fully human again and i wanted it to go in a completely different story for this new one i was kind of tired of that by the time i finished hellraiser 2 
And also another issue that I think that I noticed with both the first and the second Hellraiser is that there's kind of this fine line between horror and hokey when it comes to the character designs, and, and some do it well. Pinhead himself, of course, is a, a horror icon, and, and his design is good. But then you kind of have that Patrick Starr-looking character in the first one, uh, and the main villain in the second Hellraiser looks ridiculous. It's very hokey, so you kind of lose that horror element when you have some of these character designs that are just not quite as good. It reminded me so much of Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice yeah. is a bit of a comedy, so like I, I got that. When I'm watching Beetlejuice, I'm having a laugh. This I wasn't supposed to be having a laugh, but I was because this looked like it. And then also, it doesn't help. So one of the things that Clive Barker didn't want to do in his first film, Hellraiser, he only directed the first one, not the second one, is that he didn't want uh, the Cenobites to be like the other slashers, which at this point they were making jokes, especially Freddy. Freddy was up there on stand-up. However, in the second one with the new director, and I guess the studio pushed him or he thought it was a great idea, the the doctor, the the main villain just starts making jokes. And it's just, it's one after the other. Like, I think there were three in a row, not no break in between. And I'm so tired of this cliche. Let's, let's go ahead, mark it in the book of cliche that Bryant hates in movies. And that's going to be Evil doctors making medical puns. Yes. <laughs> like, can they please refrain from making medical puns? Like, they always got to come up behind them like, it's time for your appointment or this will only hurt for a second. Mm-hmm. I get it, man. Doctors are creepy in the first place. We don't have to, we don't have to do the puns. <laughs> oh, speaking of the director real quick, Clive Barker, because I got to make another correction to who the last podcast i've actually seen clive barker's other famous film Candyman. i somehow yeah. overlooked that in my research i don't know mm-hmm. how i even i forget if i made mention of it on that episode but the ending of hellraiser looks a lot like the ending of Candyman. the field that they're in with the burning furniture looks a lot like the same location because i remember when i was watching hellraiser i said are we is this Candyman? do we just enter the Candyman movie <laughs> and Cena was both, it was the same director. Maybe so. Yeah. Do you think Clive Barker deserves to be considered a master of horror? A master? No. No. With just two films? No. I'm not saying he's not good. I mean, he made two great horror iconic films. So, yeah. And also, I think you have to give a lot of respect, too, again, that he didn't just make a horror film. Candyman has some, has a lot to say in that film and that that doesn't play up like a normal horror film either i have to say that he is a notable name he could be he could be an icon i can i can see that i can respect that he's definitely a respectable horror creator but i can't say master of horror i can't just keep handing this out to everybody i think there's only a couple and it's because they just have a line of great horror movies and showing that they really know how to work with horror but clive barker is a name that it should be mentioned in the history of horror. No, so he didn't direct Candyman, but he produced it. I think he's a better horror producer. I mean, he has produced more horror than he has directed, but I, I would agree. I don't know that I would call him the master of horror, but that is, he is one of the names that are kind of known for that. I also thought that he directed it, but apparently not. No, but he wrote the book. 
Ah, okay, there it is. That's why. Gotcha. Yeah, so a correction to my correction. Clive Barker, I do know his name because he's the writer of the book that Candyman is based on, and he, he helped, and he, like you said, he produced Candyman as well. I'm interested to read his books, though, now. I, actually, I haven't read any horror books, except some Edgar Allan Poe here and there, mm. but I haven't really, and uh, what is it, Frankenstein? I read the first couple pages, and then I, uh, yeah, I, I skimmed the rest, and not even skimmed. I just I just bluffed the rest of it <laughs> behind class. I'll, I'll be honest. Some no, AP I love English Frankenstein. Too. I love Frankenstein. No, I'm sure it's a great book. I just you know me. I have like uh, concentration issues, and yeah, it, it was really bad then. So I just like getting through books was was hard, especially especially when time. it's an assignment. For me, I have the same issue. When I'm assigned a book for class, it's harder to read it. But if I read it outside of that, it's usually easier. I will say I think horror is one of those genres in literature that when it's done right, I think it can be way more scarier than horror for me in television and movies. Personally speaking, I think that you have an opportunity to really get an atmosphere going. But when it's done badly, it's it's bad. And for me, especially when it's like first person horror, because usually I mean, like, you know how horror protagonists usually are. They're not always the brightest. So now go into their perspective and it's not really much better. Yeah, I can see the issues with that. I did used mm-hmm. to read uh, Goosebumps and Bailey Kids while I was uh, while I was in elementary school. Just a little bit. Not too much Goosebumps. It was like Bailey Kids and it was some other type of books that was Goosebumps-esque. I forget what it was. I don't think I've heard of Bailey Kids. Yeah, that was another one. It was... It was Sort of like that. I think it was called Bailey Kids about like over two decades ago. Gotcha. Maybe we'll have to recommend some good horror books on our Instagram. We have talked about reading The Shining before we do The Shining episode. That I definitely do want to do. I do like uh, Stephen King's writing. So then let's go ahead and talk about the sequel, should we? And like I said, this is our unclassified portion of the podcast. So there will be no spoilers at this point in time, but there will be a little bit later. So what did you think of this sequel? Do you think it addressed some of your concerns with the franchise? This movie was fantastic. Like this is probably like one of the most well-made horror films. If I was a Cenobite, because (laughs) Cenobites, they find pleasure in pain and suffering. And I suffered during this movie. Oh my gosh, you got me there for a minute. I was like, wow, this is going to be a very divisive podcast. Wow, I was not expecting this. (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I suffered a bit as well with you. Yeah, did we... Open up a puzzle box or something together. What, what, what called this upon us? <laughs> I don't remember solving a puzzle box, but you know, crazier things have happened. I mean, I did, like I said on the last podcast, I cut my knuckle pretty bad. I don't know if I bled on Indian burial ground and something, and this movie just came about. God, this mm-hmm. was, man, this was one lifeless, basic film this was so much a basic horror film people like it goes by the numbers everything that i said that was good about this 
it just takes away. Everything that I said mm-hmm. was bad about this, it emphasizes. The, yeah, not a good, go ahead. One thing we talked about was how Hellraiser, one of the things that made it great was that it wasn't a traditional slasher, but I feel like this brought back the slasher elements. I thought I was watching a slasher when I was watching this film. Not only were we watching a slasher, but we were watching an, a haunted noir movie where somebody, they get cursed or get they get haunted, so they need to do the hard noir and find out the history of what we're looking into. Like, what, what all of a sudden is now, like I said, haunting them. And then, yeah, there's a bit of slasher with everybody getting, with people getting picked off one by one and there being a villain out there. And this goes by the numbers. Like, this was so predictable. I'm like, all right, we got this. First, we have the trouble final girl, which I feel like it's been used a lot that they're addict. I feel like I've seen that a few times already. Trouble final girl gets caught up in this mess. You, you got the person visiting somebody in some type of institute hospital to find out the history of this. You have them looking on the computer to find the news about this, uh, this box. One thing that is very frustrating with this is that the beginning of the film, they give you the backstory of the box. So what she's investigating for like the first two acts of this film, you already know. Mm-hmm. Like you you don't find out anything new till I think I was look, kind of looking at the time. I think like an hour into this film, and this movie's two hours. I forgot to say that's one good thing about the first two films. They're both an hour and a half. It's good. It's clean. It's cut. This movie, no. This movie goes on forever. It just keeps going and not not doing anything. We're just kind of doing the little the little circle routine. Do a little bit of investigation. Somebody gets picked off. A little bit more investigation. Somebody gets picked off. Bam. Climax. Eh, sprinkle in a little bit of generic twist. Wrap it up like we said something important. Set it up for the sequel, and we all go on our merry way. Yeah, I mean, so this follows this group of friends, like you said, the slasher teens, even though they weren't teens. I think they're a little bit older. But it it does go in this sequence where it's like one by one, people are getting picked off, and it was very slasher-esque in that way. But the thing is, it was so slow. It was so tedious like I said, it's a two-hour film, which you told me that before I watched it, and I was like, oh, crap, are you serious? <laughs> I was I was dreading it for that reason alone, because it didn't need to be two hours. And, and it's just slow, and the kills in this film aren't inventive. One thing that was present in the original Hellraiser films was the chains, and the chains pulling apart uh, Frank Cotton. And almost... Every kill in this film or every moment had those chains coming out of the walls and doing the same exact thing. And it was just tiring. It was tiring to have just the same horror. One thing I mentioned in the things I liked about Hellraiser is that they had different elements that could scare you. It had the bugs. It had the rats. And this was just straight up gore by chains <laughs> and that was about the only horror that was in here. So if you're afraid of chains, I mean, don't watch this, I guess. <laughs> This, they were, they said, call me old fashioned, but I like a good meat hook. And they said that again <laughs> and again and again. I was like, come on, man. At least if you're going to give a boring R film, are you not having fun while making this? This felt so lifeless. 
like I said, the, I like the director, and I think his his films and his story have a little bit more to it than just the standard horror. But this felt so much like a standard horror. The, the writing, like I said, just go by as a number, and also the writing was just bad sometimes. The dialogue was awful to hear. I don't know if that was something that you noticed in it, but for me, I... And having a problem with dialogue, it just pulled me even more from these characters that I already don't care about. They don't give you any reason to really like these characters. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, is that just all of the side characters, I think, were just underwhelming. Our main girl, our main character, I think she did a good job, but she wasn't really given that much range to work with either. I think the only you know actress that really stood out for me was pinhead herself um because i do think that there was a sort of menacing quality and a lot of it's in the vocal work because obviously you can't see her expressions or anything but i thought the vocal work for pinhead was excellent and so i'll have to give props to jamie clayton for that so for me i think that she did a wonderful job as pinhead but other than that i can't really praise too much on the acting here i unfortunately didn't feel that i thought she was menacing, but again, it felt standard. I'm not saying she gave a bad performance. Yeah, she probably gave the best performance, but that's a very low chain to get over. <laughs> low chain. <laughs> yes. Lots of low chains to get over in this film. <laughs> so I mentioned the writing was bad for this, and the direction, I think, was good sometimes, and other times, it, uh, just basic I think he had some cool moves in here. I think some of the special effects, like I think when the walls open up and the, the gates to the Cenobites lair was, was interesting. They actually, they had some really cool moments. Like there's this moment where a van starts to open up and stretch. I thought that was cool. So it makes me think that this was like a studio made film and they got a director who understands horror, but Again, he's no Mike Flanagan or Ari Oster, so they can go ahead and push him around a bit and give him a script that he just needs to put on a screen. And that, that's very unfortunate. That was very disappointing to see. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know I've seen some interviews talked about how, how proud he is of this. And we talked again, I watched an interview that kind of talked about the, the queer elements of it. And I don't, I think that this was uh, very much lacking. We talked about how that was a part of the original Hellraiser in our Tuesday episode. But for me, just there wasn't any real themes to it. I mean, if you talk about queer themes, I think that it was missing. You had queer people in it. Um, but I don't know that it really did much outside of that as far as like questioning heteronormativity, questioning, um, you know, the, the norm that is present and going against the norm that I think that the original had. You didn't have the religious elements. You didn't have any kind of sensuality really in it. And it just, it was, it was lacking as a film because it just, there was nothing really much going on beneath the surface. I think it tried to tackle addiction, but I don't think it had the tools necessary to really give respect to that element of the story. No, they didn't try to elaborate on that at all. Again, it was just having a final girl, having her have a tragic backstory. Therefore, when she comes up on top at the end, you can go ahead and place the label of overcame trauma. 
even though, again, like I said, got this whole standard film. One of the beats is tie it all nice together with a, hey, we have this big elaborate message. No, you didn't say anything. Nothing supports this. Just because you have somebody that fits in here, yeah, if we had an actual developed story, then you can say this. This does nothing for the LGBTQ, aside from what you said, having queer individuals actually cast in here. That's something that we talked about in the first one that we were hoping would come up more in this sequel, and it doesn't. Unless the L and LGBTQ just stands for Lady Pinhead, there's no real diversity here. There's there's no message. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it is it is huge that we had a gay relationship played out on screen. It's a big deal that we had a trans actress playing Pinhead. But uh, as far as like the themes about questioning sexuality, and uh, we also talked about how it kind of talked about some issues that were present in the LGBT community. I don't think it really addressed that. Not that I think that you need to have pain associated with that i think suffering and presenting the lgbt struggle as suffering is is problematic in itself but i think that i just with what this film was being presented as i did expect more i don't think just because you have queer people in a film necessarily make it a queer film it's just a film these are just people that are normal and live in our day-to-day lives it's just a film at that point You said association with pain. That's another theme in this movie. The association of pleasure and pain. I mean, in this franchise. Something that they were kind of saying in the first one. Like, Frank, he just experienced all this pleasure and sex. And it wasn't doing anything for him. So, he had to go ahead and find a devil box. Like, you know, a normal person would do. And in this, they just completely avoid that. They have, the, it opens up and there's like an orgy taking place in a side room. And then we open up with our lead actress and lead actor having sex. And that's it with this film. I'm not saying I needed a, a sex-filled movie. I'm not even saying that you need to explore the kinks. But have, some, have the pain associated to something. That's what this is about. That's what the Cenobites are preaching. They're saying, hey... This is how you get a full sensation. You know, you got to experience the pain with it. And this doesn't, it doesn't do anything with that. Like I said, you just have those two scenes. If you didn't want to go that route, at least go with some routes. They just, they give Lady Priest here a, a monologue you can just for say pain. Priest. <laughs> and lady Priest. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. It's like Batman, Batgirl. At least I'm saying lady and not calling her pin girl. I think you can She's just say Priest. Woman. <laughs> Think you can just say priest <laughs> or pinhead. Well, she's <laughs> gender neutral. <laughs> in, the, in the subtitle, she's listed as pinhead. Mm. So pinhead again. This is this was my issue with Candyman last year, where you have somebody saying a lot, but your movie's not supporting it. Okay, cool. You have a nice little monologue now. Now portray it, depict it, show us something. No, we're just gonna go back, and you're gonna see. You're just gonna get see somebody get tortured. Like, and, and barely tortured at that. We're just going to see meat hooks. Like, I want some... Hey, can I get a theme? No. You want a meat hook? No, a theme. Meat hook? Fine. <laughs> meat hooks. All around. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, monologuing in this film that I did not care for, but we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, at least there even is a part in this film that says, 
it's not about pleasure it's just pain and they actually admit it and part of me was like okay i like that you're actually admitting it because this was a complaint i had with the first one that there is no pleasure it's just pain but also at the same time this is not what this film is about this is not what hellraiser is about so why would you admit that in your story i will admit pinhead here had a had a great line when it came to sensations and salvation i was like okay this is this is really cool but again let's let's see something no you're just again you're just you're just saying and it got to the kind of the point where the cenobites just seemed to be like it, it got to the point that they just didn't understand society like they didn't understand pain and pleasure like they actually had ignorance like they legitimately thought that pain was pleasure like they were confused why nobody was liking everything that they were giving them which i understand but it was it, it went so far that it became laughable to me because then i just imagine like oh the cinnabites it, it reminded me of the adams family when they're like why doesn't anybody enjoy the tarantulas that i'm giving them mm, i didn't get that from this film to be honest i don't know maybe i was reaching for something <laughs> I, I was bored i was trying not to reach for the remote so i was reaching for something else i almost stopped this film midway through i didn't know if i could make it really yeah it, it was it was rough uh i actually watched part of it last night and then the other part this morning <laughs> i needed a break <laughs> that's what i was thinking i'm glad to hear you say it too because i was up late so i was i just don't know if i'm tired what's going on but I, I, I knew I couldn't watch it today. Like, I had to finish it then and now because you wanted uh, to record early. N not saying that because of mm -hmm. that, that's why I, I suffered. You're not to blame, necessarily. I mean, part I mean, partially. Yeah, I don't like splitting movies up because you ruin the vibe and the flow. But I was watching it late last night, and I wasn't really that tired when I put it on. It was late. But I, yeah, I, I, I was falling asleep and I was like, I can't do this because I need to be present for this film and I'm not right now. It's putting me to sleep. <laughs> well, I was, I wasn't up late. I was, well, technically I was, I was up for 20 hours at this point when I started this movie. I think I was up for a little bit longer actually, but I'm glad it's, but it got to the point. I was like, man, maybe I'm just tired. Like, so I, I, I did pause it and kind of woke myself up, put myself into it. And then I played it again and just. I just got, I got slapped with a meat hook and, but I, I, I'm glad. And then it just, when it got to that hour point, that's when I was like, okay, no, it, it's not me. Like this, this movie has nothing going for it. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I've seen in a lot of horror, I think recently is that other than like when the kills are taking place, it is a quiet film. Like all your actors kind of have this like droll to their voice. There's not really much noise and stuff going on. And it, it is, <laughs> I don't want to say it's soothing, but it, it like it doesn't keep you awake. <laughs> that's for sure. And it just makes it seem tedious. It makes the film's pacing seem very slow. And again, especially when you have seen this film before. Mm-hmm. Another thing we kind of talked about off the podcast was the lighting in this film. And that was something that, whew, it was uh, not great for me. I started watching this film and I really thought that my TV was broken for a while. I was like convinced that something was wrong with my television and I got really scared. I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I changed my picture settings multiple times. And I 
the opening scene, especially in this party environment, it is so dark. Something about the way that the lights were in the film almost made it look like there was a glare, like things were fuzzy on my television. I actually turned the movie off for a second and put on something else just so I could make sure. I was like, is this my television? Is something wrong with my television? Because this looks so bad. I cannot see what's going on. And this was dead of night. Like it looked like, like the glare that comes off the windows when you're watching in broad daylight. Like that's what it looked like on my screen. And I don't know if it was the same for you, but something about the lighting just was not working with my television. And I don't know if this film really was not meant for television, if this was meant for a big screen in a different environment. I don't know, but it is a streaming service. It's being released on a streaming service. It should be formatted for my television. And I have a good TV. No, I, I had issues as well. First, when I had the movie on, I thought, huh, I kind of want to play this in a different picture setting. So at first I was thinking maybe I'm just now, it's just now clicking in my head that maybe I should change the picture setting for this while watching streaming. So I went ahead and looked at my TV. I saw it was in comfort mode. So I said, okay, maybe that's it. So I went ahead and I switched that and I put it in cinema mode because I'm watching, you know, a cinematic movie or so I thought. And then I, just, I was like, man, I can't see anything. So I turned out the lights in my in my house because I thought that it was it was like the afternoon. So there's still a little bit of light coming in. I thought maybe it was just too much external light hitting the TV because this was a weird kind of darkness. Like it wasn't just that it was dark. It was just I don't know. It, it, it was it was off. And then I said, I can't see anything. I, I I can't do it. So I went ahead, switched it to, there was another cinema mode and I watched it for another 30 minutes. I said, nope, can't do it. And I just, I think I just switched it to standard and, and watched it and it was a little bit brighter and I could see what was finally going on, which again, I, I know that falls on, you know, a, a various cast and crew, but it's a little disappointing from this director who, he, he shot in the woods before and those movies were better lit than this one. Like his whole ritual takes place in the woods, all of it. Mm-hmm. And there's actually some really cool scenes he he does with that. And but now that I'm thinking about it too, I wonder really how much time he had for this movie because like we said, Nighthouse came out last year. I believe it was ready in 2020, but it was it didn't get a release till 2021. Or unless it was a 2020 movie and then it got a, it was ready in 2019. I forget. But I think it was already a year prior before this movie was made. So he maybe had like a year for this for this movie. So I wonder if this was a rush job at all. If they switched directors in between. But yeah, this movie wasn't just dark. It was off. Yeah. The lighting was just not good. Yeah, it wasn't just that it was dark. It was the lighting in these dark scenes were just, just off. And I, I don't know lighting terms well enough to understand why it was like that, um, but it was bad. And it is disappointing from this director because something I said about The Night House and even The Ritual too is that this director has such an awareness of the environment that he's filming in and this just did not have it. And that entire opening party scene was pretty much unwatchable. You said that there was a scene with an orgy. I couldn't even see it, to be honest. Like, I, I watched it, and I was like, was that an orgy? And I rewinded it, because I was like, is this what's actually happening in this film? And even so, I was like, well, I'm just going to assume that's what's happening, because I, I can't see it. <laughs> it would be funny if somebody brightened this up, and it wasn't an orgy. It was actually people sitting down, 
just having a normal conversation. <laughs> but you know what I could see clearly enough were the Cenobites. And True. what did you think of the Cenobites? The, the looks of them? Because we said that, hey, that's a plus in this franchise. Except for, you know, you don't like the, star, uh, the Patrick Star looking one. But what did you yeah. think about them in this film? I thought the designs were pretty good. Something that I thought was interesting, I don't know if I generally liked it, was the the similar motif with the pins, that all of the Cenobites did have pins kind of somewhere on their person. And there is a scene where that is especially used in uh, Killing. That was really brutal. Actually, one of the more brutal things in the film. So that was an interesting way to kind of connect them all together. Okay, I'm just now noticing that. That's cool. I'll give it that. Other than that, though, I think these Cenobites look too clean. Like, they look too clean, too symmetric. Like, you could really just tell that these were special effects. Good special effects or practical effects. Good effects. However, it just, it took me out of the movies. These look more like aliens than they did demons to me. Uh, I think I see what you mean, particularly with the one female Cenobite and also the Chatterer character. I think that that didn't really live up to the same way that the originals did. But I do think there were some other side characters that really didn't have much of a part, but they were still there that were well designed, I think. They looked a lot like what we've been seeing, I think, in in streaming movies when it comes to these creatures. Well, probably not so much because, again, like I said, they are practical, but they just, they looked, again, just too clean, too too perfect. I didn't find, it didn't look like they just walked out of hell. If they do, they must have some a great hygienic system there. <laughs> True. I didn't notice their, like, I think they were mostly naked, too, weren't they? Because I remember seeing the one character had definitely a pretty pronounced vagina wound that was interesting. But, like, they didn't have, like, the whole, like, BDSM kind of get-up costuming that they did in the original, if I'm remembering correctly. I guess it was skin. It, they were that was the other thing. Now that you mention it, I think that's what was bothering me is that they were gray. Like their skin was, it it looked like a like a suit, but their skin was gray. There wasn't really much like we see in the the other films. It, they look like they've been having their skin just stretched out, pulled back, mutilated. Here though, it looks a lot more like a suit. So I couldn't really tell what was suit and what was skin because it was all the same gray color, which I don't know why gray was their choice of color. Maybe because the way that they were doing the lighting, you wouldn't be able to tell certain details as much. So it worked better. But again, it the look failed hard for me. Except for the one black Cenobite. They did include that. She didn't have gray skin. Which Cenobite? The black woman Cenobite. What black woman Cenobite? There was a black woman who played a Cenobite and they made sure that her skin was darker than the rest of them. I didn't notice that at all. Because I know that they were talking about it too and they were talking about like the diversity of this film in their interviews. But I thought that was interesting. I don't know. It's starting to... Maybe I saw but it. The problem was that 
their lighting wasn't good enough. One of my biggest pet peeves is that when you have people of color and you don't know how to light them in a film, and I think that might have been part of it for this film. Man, there is a really good conversation to be had about color and color grading for darker skinned individuals, but we can have it on, and it was actually done this, the conversation gets brought up, Fossil Snow Podcast for, for Nope. And that's actually a really good conversation that we can have. I don't want to waste it on this on this episode. I'll be honest. <laughs> so we'll we'll save it for another more well deserved episode. Maybe we'll talk fair. about it at the end of the year. <laughs> Very fair. Man, this film. <laughs> Man, between this and Pinocchio, I'm trying to figure out which one aggravates me more. Oh, I was thinking. I was like, I was thinking. Okay, because. Um, since we did our water cooler talk of last year, I've been kind of trying to remember where to place movies in certain categories. And I, I was thinking for a while, like, okay, Pinocchio still for me is the the one that makes me angry is because it was the most lazy. But as we're talking about this, the more I'm getting like heated <laughs> about this movie. What film made you suffer the most in 2022? <laughs> Love to have that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, one makes me angry because it just made me suffer. The other made me angry because it made me, like, just uh, frustrated at their audacity. <laughs> at the audacity, yes. Three movies have had some extreme audacity for this year so far. It's it's going to be a fun conversation at the end of a year, that's for sure. If I make it. God, if, I don't know <laughs> if I can handle another one, Caitlin. We still got Halloween next week. Oh, yeah. That's that's going to be a fun one, too. I'm sure. Maybe. So let's go ahead and move into the classified part of our podcast. This is where we're going to be talking spoilers, but we're also going to be giving a little bit of thoughts about whether we thought that this was necessary or not as a film in the franchise, as well as our letter grade. And where do we rank this with the other films in the franchise as well? So if you haven't watched this movie yet, go watch it, pause this podcast, and then come back to us and see what we have to say in that regard. So Brian, do you think that this film was needed at all? I know we kind of, we tend to be a little bit redundant, I think, in this portion of the podcast because when you have these legacy sequels, a lot of times they are cash grabs. So what do you think for this particular film? Do you think the same for this one? I don't, I think we've been pretty diverse with this i mean i'm even thinking about prey i said that prey was was wanted uh but i don't i don't know if we ever said that any were needed except for jurassic world but that was the end of a trilogy but i think even like the jurassic world trilogy was needed after the jurassic park trilogy i think it was something great to revisit but for this i think it was actually welcomed after watching the first two and then seeing how many failing sequels it had like man there's something actually here and again this is a different type of horror movie people especially looking for straight horror they're gonna have something to look forward to with this this was a welcomed movie yeah i i kind of agree and something that we talk about in our tuesday episode is kind of the concept of that elevated horror you know and hellraiser the original was definitely a film that started something that was a little bit more complex in its themes so i was curious to see how that was gonna work 
in today's era where we do have that sort of elevated horror genre obviously I don't think that this worked well but I think that it was a welcomed sequel because I think that it was something that could have really been done well in our day and age could have could (laughs) have potential is uh sometimes it makes it more disappointing when a, a series or a film has higher potential it's very unfortunate but let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about our opinions on this film from a spoiler point of view and there is kind of a lot to say about some of the characters in this at least from a spoiler setting <laughs> i wouldn't say that they have much depth Brian's shaking his head at me right now <laughs> but i think that the two characters in this film that you can't really talk about without talking spoilers are trevor and uh voight the kind of billionaire and these are two characters Void is introduced at the very beginning of this film he procures this puzzle box and begins killing young people just because he has an interest in the occult he's rich he can kind of do what he wants and he kind of serves as the human villain in this film and to kind of get what he wants in this film he gets Trevor Trevor is dating our lead girl he gets Trevor to lure the girl to the puzzle box they break into a safe they steal the puzzle box and he becomes this kind of mystery villain that the character doesn't know that he's really a villain but I mean for me personally Trevor was a character that I was suspicious of pretty much from the get-go from the minute he said okay let's break into this this lock this a vault and steal a puzzle box yeah this was the one twist in the movie but again it was it was very expected it was telegraphed actually so, I mean, I was glad that it happened because I said at least something unique and original happened in this film. And I use original loosely here. But other than that, yeah, everything seemed sketchy from the get-go. And the amount of coincidence had to be planned. Yeah, and I think my problem, though, with Trevor as a villain is that it never really committed to it. He didn't really seem like a bad guy. And his motivations for this is just money. And that was about it. But we don't even know why he's really looking for that i think it also tried to frame him as a former addict but i wasn't entirely sure so i didn't know if that played into it at all but he wasn't awful he was kind of a quiet character he wasn't great but i wasn't entirely sure what his motivations were or if he really was the true villain he was a former addict but i don't know how bad of a situation you can put yourself in especially this movie didn't even imagine it you would be persuaded to lure five people to a gruesome death at least give them a sick mother or something it's a cliche (laughs) but something Mm -hmm. and then at some point like he's pretty mutilated as well he's bleeding out because he's being attacked by vicinobites as well and at what point does he go okay maybe this isn't a good idea let me just not do this (laughs) Yeah, he try to he tries to make amends at the end. Like he's trying to help, or at least he's coaching the guy. Like, hey, man, it's over. Just give up. So it seems like he doesn't fully want to. Com- again, he doesn't want to fully commit to this evil plan. But again, it's like, why did you even get involved in the first place? Mm-hmm. 
And what really was the plan? And how did he find Trevor? I don't know. It, it really makes no sense. And, and in general, this billionaire or whatever, however, I don't know. His whole situation, that whole aspect of the story just did not work for me because it just didn't... It didn't really make sense. He he kind of vanishes per this article that our main character reads about, but he didn't really go too far because he was just in his house for a while in this weirdly constructed house because he built a cage around his house that is uh, operated by switches, but at the same time, no one's supposed to know where this person is and he's like wanted for like the disappearance of these young people but i'm guessing the law enforcement didn't really look too hard because he's just at home building a cage well no the, so the cage was already built which actually i found the puzzle house to be pretty cool because they're even showing it to you they give you a little sneak peek at it in blueprint form so i thought that was interesting they didn't say that he was the reason that they went missing but it was they were just individuals that were tied to Voight also missing. So it wasn't that he was a subject. He was kind of thrown in the mix of it. So they said, oh, everybody and Voight disappeared. Well, but again, the he articles was just linked him to it enough that you would think that he would be wanted for questioning. And in the article, too, they showed a picture of the house and it did not have the puzzle box on it. The puzzle gates on it. So I'm guessing oh. that happened oh, sometime. Yeah, right. but, yeah. So that would have had to have been constructed sometime after that disappearance well serena did say that she took care of his estate at the end Mm, okay so maybe she had that cage built serena was such another character that just made no sense you see her at the beginning getting the puzzle box for our wealthy man and then she kind of comes back later because she's just at a a mental hospital i I think it was a mental hospital and they're like oh my god we have to go Oh, was it a regular hospital? Well, there's a scene where our lead girl's like, oh, we're going to go see Serena. And like, it's built up to be this big thing. And I'm like, who the heck is Serena? <laughs> oh, I remember this Serena. Lady? <laughs> Did you remember Serena? At first, I thought yeah. that she was a character maybe from one of the sequels coming back. I thought they were going to, you know, legacy it up. But no, she was just from the very, very beginning. And I, I didn't remember her by the time we got to that scene. Is that when you took a break? Because I felt like that was pretty close. She introduces herself as Serena. I I don't know. I think maybe just because I was so distracted by not being able to see anything on screen, I didn't remember her introducing. And that whole intro part just seems so out of place anyways. I, I did not remember her at all by the time we got to that scene. She wasn't a big enough character for me. No, like I said, she's the one that they visit in the hospital that has some information. And I say some because, you know, they only get a little bit of information and then they leave. Because that's how it works in these films. Because, you know, we still have another hour to go through. (laughs) Also, that that aggravated me. So they were wrestling over the puzzle box. The one that she couldn't figure out how to get to the next configuration. But by fighting over it, they accidentally solved the puzzle. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever tried to grab something from somebody? It's, there's not many, there's not many motions. It's not a complex thing. Yeah, you're not not solving puzzles while you're. <laughs> no, you don't, don't accidentally solve a puzzle. Whoops, sorry. Now you're dead. <laughs> yeah, just imagine like taking a Rubik's cube from somebody and it solves itself, and then you get stabbed. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what this was. And speaking of the configurations, what did you think about that element of the film? Okay, actually, I like the puzzle box in this one because it actually 
was like a puzzle. That's something we talked about in the other films is that you just twist it twice and push it down and it's done. In this, it actually was like a puzzle. I thought that part was cool, but I think like the whole it having a hidden blade that just came out and randomly cut you while solving it or ac- accidentally, I thought that was a bit much. But I, th- I think the configurations were cool. It was a cool touch. And I like that it actually it leads into the Leviathan model that we saw from the second one. So it was looking a little bit into that lore, even though it didn't fully touch on it or explore it. Yeah, I didn't mind it so much. I don't know if I really like the execution of the different puzzles. But I actually, as far as the blade goes, I liked the idea that the puzzle pricks you when you solve it and it has your blood and that's kind of how they track you and choose you. I liked that idea. I don't like the execution. Like, I thought that there was going to be a blade in the, like, circular part. When you push it down, it was going to, like, prick your finger and that's how you get your blood and, like, they that's how you're chosen. I would have liked that element instead of they were actually using it as a weapon at some point to stab people with at the box. And I did not like that element of it at all. Yes. And it switches because in the beginning when he's solving it, it's like a needle goes through his hand. But then in this is a straight up blade. Also, we have different definitions of prick. (laughs) No, I said I would have liked that idea. It definitely did not wasn't just a finger prick, but I would have liked that idea if you like pushed it down and it like stabbed your your finger or something or something like less obtrusive just as a way for them to get your blood and they like attack you and mark you by your blood. I would have liked that better than how it was managed in this film. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I, that's, I agree with that. Something a little less obnoxious and something mm-hmm. a little less that people can just accidentally get cut by and now they're in an agreement with because two people get out two out of the six configurations or five, because as a trans, no, six. It, it's by accident. At one point, mm-hmm. I thought the one guy was going to step on the blade. Yeah, I didn't like that it was just like it stayed out too. Like it was just like it should have been, you know, you solve the puzzle, you get pricked, cut, whatever you want to say, and then that's it. But it just kind of stayed out, and that's why they were using it as a weapon. It was just too much. And it was, like, in a weird position, too, that it was, like, awkward. Like, there are people solving the puzzle all the time, and they weren't getting cut because it just wasn't in the position of where you would solve that puzzle. It just didn't make sense in general. <laughs> yeah, to make sense of this is about as complicated as the actual puzzle. And I think, actually, you only need five <laughs> sacrifices. So two out of the five, which would be 40%, were accidents. Yeah. And as far as the the sacrifices or the bargaining, like I think that they were trying to bring back that element from the original where is is it Kirsty or Christy? I always <laughs> forget it. Kirsty. Kirsty, okay. Where Kirsty is like bargaining with the Cenobites, you know, take my uncle, I'll give you my uncle, but let me live. So I thought that it was trying to bring back some of that element, but it just it was more of a sacrifice than really a bargain. Yeah, something I noticed, something earlier this year did this better because there was a point in the movie where they said that the the girl says she hears bells and I automatically thought clock chimes and thought about Vecna. Mm, yeah. And that does a bit. Granted, it's a TV show, has more time to develop, but still, I mean, I, there's, I'd rather watch episode four all over again. Well, episode four was great. So, yeah, I'd rather watch a lot of things over this. <laughs> Yeah, it 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 definitely was not 
not great. <laughs> Just love the execution, but like even everything else aside, there's a lot I could forgive. But the fact that it just felt like it was wasting my time, but I was just bored through a lot of his film, honestly. That's, I think, is the worst part of it for me. The pacing is just like, if you have a... <sighs> Horror is not a genre that you can have bad pacing in. Horror should be exciting. I can understand build-up and having some slow pacing for build-up, but this just wasn't even that. So it was it was frustrating to me. Uh, yeah, saying it has to have something at least like at least something in the movie a good kill a good ending a climax this has nothing it's just boring from the beginning to the end this movie actually just made me angry because I, I just realized that the movie doubles down on the boredom because it's already a boring film but it gets extra boring again because they already tell you what she's investigating so we watch her 30 minutes find out something that we already know so if they got rid of that, it could have created at least some kind of mystery. But now they said, I want you to be extra bored. Like a Cenobite was editing this. Let's talk a little bit about the very ending of this film and our ending for our billionaire. Or I don't think he's a billionaire. I keep calling him a billionaire. He's just a rich dot guy. He's a wealthy witch guy. And he definitely has an arc in this film. He... <sighs> So back in the past, when he solved or he had people solve this puzzle and do the configurations, he kind of got impaled by, was it the box? What was it that was impaling him? I think that confused they, me. They made some sort of device and they put it inside of him, which was actually pretty cool. Like that was probably the most horrifying thing in this movie next to the, next to the nail going through the throat. Because it's just pulling on the nerves throughout. Like, that is the ultimate torture device. But yeah, it was some kind of box musical note thing that went through his body. I'm guessing I'm guessing it was like a music box uh, mechanism. Because they, cause I believe the box, like in the second one, it plays some music. You kind of, you have this musical box uh, score going on at certain points of the movie and she talks about how salvation is a single note so I think this was a musical box mechanism which is probably the most well thought out thing in this movie I think it looked it depended on the scene I think in theory that that mechanism is really gross and creepy but at the same time in other scenes it just kind of looked a little silly I I can see that I, I thought it was alright but I can see why it looks a little silly because at some points he does just look like a tin man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the revelation that this character gets at the end of the film is Pinhead remarks that it wasn't ever really about this journey towards sensation that he was looking for. It really was all about power all along because this is a man who was sacrificing others to get what he wanted. And because of this, they give him an ending where they are actually turning him into another Cenobite. And we saw this in Hellraiser 2, this process of turning a character like this into a Cenobite. What did you think about that part of the film? Yeah, sure. All right, why not? <laughs> yeah, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I was checked out at this point. It, my note at the end just said, this is a dumb ending. It's just, I don't know. I, I don't, it, it's something that if it was a more interesting film, I would be more inclined to research 
the symbolism of the ending because it kind of had a a holy aesthetic to it or a holy not aesthetic it had a holy look to it it almost looked like they were crafting him into an angel like not into the the pleasant angel uh what's it called imagery that we're used to but like what angels are really actually described to look like and how horrifying it'd be to actually see one that's what i kind of got out of this but by this point in the film i i just didn't care like i really i just didn't care here's a character i met 20 minutes ago that i never cared about and now we're seeing just some special effects display yeah, I agree. I, I, and I didn't really care for a bad aspect of the Cenobites in Hellraiser 2 either. So it just didn't really, you know, cause me much joy or excitement to see that final moment. And as for the ending for our final girl here, I feel like that irritated me as well. So for her, her final gift, I'll say that is given to her, she is, you know, subjected to a life of suffering because she's going to feel responsible for the deaths that are, were around her. And I feel like that was one kind of mean-spirited if you are looking at this through an addiction lens. I, I, I don't know, but I fully liked the message that it was presenting. I don't know. I kind of thought that, I mean, obviously, I don't think it needs to be hopeful, but I felt like this character was already suffering enough <laughs> and I feel like logically none of this was really her fault and I understand why she might feel that way but it, really Trevor was the one to blame <laughs> and this billionaire she really wasn't an active participant in a lot of these moments that caused this death and I think that that correlation there was a little bit of a stretch the Cinnabite was just trying to make a good a good plea like you sure you don't want the meat hooks <laughs> and like you, you I, i'm pretty sure i saw a cenobite coming around the corner with like a bundle of of meat hooks and she's like go away go, no, never mind she doesn't <laughs> want it apparently we're not good enough for her they, they seem to seem kind of surprised that's what she wanted too like oh you want to live on like that dang you i don't know if i could handle that i know they tougher were. than me <laughs> That's that's where it kind of got. That's why I said, like at a point, it seemed they just seem out of touch. Yeah. And that's where it kind of like that's where I started thinking about the Rick and Morty episode as well. But with her, that's I I won't give it thought because the movie doesn't do anything to support this message at the end of her overcoming trauma or coming to terms with trauma because they never developed the trauma. They never developed her backstory. And her subplot of what it is, her internal conflict. So there's there's nothing there. There's nothing to support. I'm not, whatever I dig and whatever I find, yeah, it's going to be upsetting because there's nothing there. Yeah, that's true. And you can probably tell by this point I was really checked out of the movie. No, I mean, yeah, but it was just, again, there's, we got to the point where none of this is built up. None of this is deserved. Yeah, it just really wasn't a good ending. There wasn't really any like triumphant win against the Cenobites, which we saw in the previous films, even though I wasn't really a fan of those endings either. I think with the the ending of the first one, we, we talked about it, even if they 
didn't really defeat the Cenobites and it ended before that final battle, like it would have still been good, but we kind of got to have the hero triumphant moment. I, but with this, yeah, there was just nothing there. We kind of mm-hmm. talked about it during Hocus Pocus 2 as well, that that was a a great ending for an undeserved movie. This was, this had absolutely nothing. This is, it's odd that I'm going to say that Hocus Pocus 2 had a better ending than this. That is odd. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, at least with Hocus Pocus 2, I can see, man, I could have really felt something if you just kind of, if you just kind of tweak this a little bit here and there. This was like, no, we're going to need a whole new layout of a plan in a movie. So what would you give this movie as far as your rating, Ben? This made me think about the way I rate movies on here. Like, I kind of need to extend the scale. Like, we need a further, or I, I need a further movies from each other. Like, they're too close to this movie. Uh, I give this a D minus. This is almost an E for me. This is very close. If it wasn't for a couple things that I like direction wise, and I'm not saying that just because I like the director. No, there were actually some good things in here. There's some small moments of, okay, that was a bit clever. But man, was this, this borders. This is like a D minus minus. This is a D minus tell your parents to call me. Type of letter grade. <laughs> and I, I just want to say, if you thought that I made too many meat hook moments in this episode, then then that's the movie for you as well. So if you're tired of that, you're going to be tired of this movie. Gosh, there's just so many meat hooks. Like, that was just the one thing, like all the other things, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so tired of seeing this freaking meat hooks. Uh, yeah, I agree with you that I felt like I questioned myself about how I was ranking movies on here because I completely wanted to go back and change how I ranked the first one. Um, Exactly. I I was thinking, yeah, I was like, okay, the first one compared to this, it looks better. But at the same time, I don't want to move the first one up because then it's closer to other films that were actually, you know, were actually like really good films. And maybe they just had some a little problem to it, or maybe they just weren't that excellent film. Because B movies, you know, we say, hey, it's still a good film. There may be nothing wrong with it. You can get a B. So I don't want to put it on a C plus when it does have a lot of issues. Like even how I rated Hocus Pocus 1 and 2, I was like, I kind of want to move it further from this film. But the only way I could do that is by making this an E film. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's very difficult. I'm going to give it a D. Which is just a, a, I won't give it the minus. I just because of Jamie Clayton, I think that it, it it had promise. I think this film had promise, and that's why it makes it so much more disappointing. But it was not the film that I thought we were going to get, and it just it it was suffering. It was the pacing was bad. It was just not not good. But I'll give a. Uh, a step up just for Jamie Clayton because I, I really liked her in this film. I will say I, we haven't really had too big of a difference recently with our letter grades either, except for Jurassic World. Yeah, Jurassic World. Yeah, we really haven't had too much of a difference because even so it's funny, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and this movie. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not a good movie. We both agree it's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. And also it was critically panned, but we enjoyed ourselves and we ended up giving it pretty much the same grade. 
Actually, I think we both gave it like two different grades. Like, hey, it's a D movie, but I had a B time. Yeah. And I hope I didn't give that movie a B, though. I got to go back and listen to that <laughs> one. But I think I did say something along the lines of like, I had a, it's a D movie, but I had a B time. And yeah, with with this, I saw that it had an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, which doesn't mean that everybody, the average score is an 80%. It just means that 80% of critics like this movie, while 20% do not favor this movie. So we would fall in the, the 20% that, that don't care for this movie. But I, I don't know. I felt like I was reading some decent headlines about this, but you and I seem to uh, be on the, the same page. Uh, well, Predator, we had a big difference in. Oh, but original? Legacy, yeah, legacy sequels, yeah, I guess we, we're about the same. Some movies were a bit different. We both ended up really liking Maverick. Uh, Jaws, we were a bit different on. So I think, yeah, mm-hmm. le- legacy modern movies were about the same, it appears. Unless dinosaurs are involved. Yeah, unless dinosaurs are involved. <laughs> but I am looking forward to, to seeing if there are some that are a little bit more divisive. So we talked about where we rank this movie, but let's talk about if we want more from this franchise. Would you like to see a film that is in this franchise that maybe takes a little bit different of a direction? No, I'm not giving another one another chance. No. <laughs> We're not doing this again. Yeah, I'm prone to agree. I mean, I think that maybe you could make something with a completely different point of view, direction, story. But as someone who's not huge on the Hellraiser franchise, it's not something that I look forward to. I don't know that that's something I really want to give another chance and have to put that gamble on it. So as I said before, we did watch the original Hellraiser and we watched Hellraiser 2. Where would we rank it in between those or with those two films? I feel like we're going to be on the same page on this one. Uh, Starting from the bottom up, this one, the second, and the original. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to say the same. I really did not like the second one at all. So it is, I will say that this one and the second one are very close and probably before this podcast I would have ranked the second one last but hearing more about the frustrations and and just realizing how frustrated I truly was by this film yeah I'll go ahead and keep this last and the hell reserve the original is definitely going to be first yeah the the second one is not good it's one of the few movies that I would say is kind of excusable for what happened but it's not good but it gets a lot of hype actually I've seen a lot of good things about it and when looking at rankings it's usually I've seen it actually ranked above the original in some lists. Oh, I didn't see any of the... What list are you... Mm. Are you looking at the third page of Google? (laughs) No, I was not. I think it was like I looked at like Hellraiser ranked and like the first one I clicked on put the second one as number two. I mean, the second one as number one, the first one is number two, and then the 2022 one was like number four. Oh, actually, I didn't even see any modern lists. Uh, yeah. So I've seen, I mean, I can see the second one being a cult classic because I think there, because I think there's a lot to like in that film, but you have to look at it through like your own pers- like your own perspective. Like you have to fill in gaps for that movie. So I can see why there are some people that really, really like that movie, but I think you have to do a lot of your own, your own, uh, what's it called? Input, imaginative input. Ah, okay, I see. It's a little bit more... 
I don't like to say campy because there is a lot of like true gore in it, but it's it's a little bit more hooky, I think, than the original. Oh yeah. Which if that's yeah, your they, thing, they that's your thing, but. No, I I think there's just a lot of cool things in there that man, I wish the budget did stick around, and they could have gotten uh they could have gotten through, and really explored a lot of things they open up. No pun intended. <laughs> yes. But if you want to go ahead and see what we had to say about the original Hellraiser, that will be coming out Tuesday as part of our core objective. So be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, if you want to take a look and see what else we're watching throughout the week, we're posting on our socials as well as on our personal letterboxes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen. On Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen, but on Twitter and Instagram, it is Op Silver Screen. And as far as our personal letterboxes go, like I said, I did watch the ritual. So if you want to see what I had to rank it, go to my letterbox at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C A I T. And Bryant, you can find him at Swank Seal. That's capital S, capital S. Till next time, we'll be in HQ recovering. I'm Bryant. <laughs> and I'm Caitlin. See ya.